Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. My name is Douglas Parsons. Greg Howard is my guest today. A month ago, I was able to read his new book, The Visitors, which is set to be released on February 1st, 2022. Every once in a while, you're able to read, to see, or to listen to something that helps heal the teenage self. And Greg's new book definitely has done that for myself. A little bit about Greg. Greg Howard was born and raised in the South Carolina Low Country, where his love of stories blossomed at a young age. Originally set on becoming a songwriter, Greg followed that dream to Nashville, Tennessee, where he spent years producing the music of others, before eventually returning to his childhood passion of writing stories. And thank God for that. Greg's critically acclaimed debut middle school novel, The Whispers, was nominated for an Edgar Award, and his second middle grade novel, Middle School's a Drag, You Better Work, is being adapted for television by Harry Potter producer David Heyman, Heyday Television, and NBC Universal. Greg writes about 2S LGBTQ plus characters and issues as his focus is writing the kind of books he wishes he had access to as a gay kid growing up in the South. Also, the author of the young adult novel, Social Intercourse, Greg's other latest middle grade offering. The Visitors will be published by Putnam Penguin on February 1st, as I previously mentioned. He's still involved in the music industry as a co-owner of an independent record label in Nashville. And when he's not writing books or producing music, Greg enjoys traveling, reading, hiking, and spending time with his friends. He currently resides in Nashville with his three rescued fur babies, Molly, Toby, and Riley. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, I am thrilled to be able to talk to Greg Howard about his life, his writing, and especially his new novel, The Visitors. Before I bring Greg to your listening ears, Tales of the 2S LGBTQ Plus is a weekly audio podcast that showcases the remarkable people within our LGBTQ Plus community and definitely recognizing two spirit folks here as well. By listening to our stories, we gain insight, understanding, and connection. So let's continue to connect while being introduced to amazing people and topics. This episode has been recorded live, so do expect technical hiccups, voice snafus, ums and ahs, and other unexpected hijinks, which may have happened, and with me involved, it likely has. If you're listening on the audio platforms such as Apple Podcasts and Spotify, please make sure that you give us a starred rating, a review that helps us with our algorithms and that allows us to continue to release your stories to everyone. And if you're watching here on YouTube, be sure to press the button there in order to receive future notifications with the subscribe button. Again, your stories, our stories for everyone. Now, I am based here in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And it's important for me to say this, as I would like to acknowledge that I'm living within Treaty 6 territory and within the Métis homeland and Métis nation of Alberta Region 4, a traditional meeting grounds, gathering place, and traveling route to the Cree, Sado, Blackfoot, Métis, and Dakota Sioux. I acknowledge all the many First Nation, Métis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these lands for centuries. I am grateful for the traditional knowledge keepers and elders who are still with us today and those whose footsteps we follow in. I continue to open myself up to listen, to learn, and to understand. I hope you continue to join me on this journey as we learn truth. I make this acknowledgement as an act of reconciliation and gratitude 
to those on whose territory we reside. Today on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, Greg Howard joins us, and it's now time to bring him up onto your screen and or to your listening ears. Welcome to Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+, Greg. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and so happy to talk to you. Greg, your book has come around at a perfect time. Uh, you know that I know that you know that growing up gay, lesbian, transgender, bi is difficult. Right. And it's diff especially difficult for people of a certain age because we never had the visibility that we do see today. We never right. saw it in our books. We never saw it on social media as we didn't have it. For myself, the only time I ever saw a gay man was on the cover of People's Magazine when they were dying or soon to have died of HIV and AIDS. Knowing a little bit about you, you and I are in similar age group and I imagine we had this as a similar background to each other. So oh, my yeah. first question to you, Greg, then is why now? Why now have you begun writing those books that help soothe the soul of someone like myself who needed my soul to be soothed so long ago? Well, I did come to this late in my life. Um, I'm 55 years old. And I've been in the music business for over 30 years here in Nashville. Writing was always something I, I aspired to do when I was a child or kid. You know, I loved writing stories. I, I, I would watch TV movies of the week. You might remember what those are. And um, then I would go and write down the story and basically consider that I had written it. But that's called plagiarism. So I don't encourage that. <laughs> um, but you know how things go. You start doing other things. I started writing songs and then I wanted to be a songwriter in Nashville. And so that's what brought me here. But that that longing to write stories um, always stayed there. And so as the big five zero was approaching, I felt like, OK, it's when am I going to do this? You know, I've always wanted to do this. But trying to decide what kinds of books to write was, you know, first order of business. I knew I wanted to write about queer characters because that's what I know, you know, that's my experience. Uh, my first book that I sold um, was actually for teenagers called Social Intercourse. And I was just wanted to write about my experience as a teenager. I had read a lot of books like, you know, Simon versus the Homo Sapiens Agenda and Aristotle and Dante discovered the secrets of the universe and Will Grayson, Will Grayson. These are fantastic books, but they're different perspectives. They weren't my perspective as a Southern kid in a religious environment um, that really was kind of raunchy, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Um, so I just wanted to write from my experience and that's where social intercourse came. After that, I kind of got into the middle grade arena and that came about from, again, wanting to write something from my experience when I was young, you know, 10 to 12 years old. And I, that's when I kind of remembered, wait a minute, when I was this age, I didn't have these books. You know, I didn't have any books I could go to and read that I saw myself in that's what I want to do. That's what I want to write or get, or, you know, for the queer kids still out there who need these books, you know, and as you probably know, Doug, in the young adult world, there's been a lot of queer representation over the past several years. And that's wonderful. Uh, middle grade has been a little slower. Um, middle grade is usually like eight, nine, 10 and up. Um, and it's been a little slower to get there. There's some great authors writing uh, queer stories in middle grade, like Barbara D and Shannon Hitchcock, Donna Gephardt, Alex Gino. Um, mm. But we still are kind of far behind the, the YA world as far as getting uh, these stories into middle grade hands. And that's kind of how I came to it late in life. And I kind of rediscovered my passion for writing and my mission to write the books that, that kids need to see themselves in. And I thank you for it. Um, the book itself, The Visitors, 
is an excellent read. It has truth. It has mystery. There's a horror element to it. It's got all of those ingredients that keeps you engaged within the reading. And, and then you're left with the an ending that goes, I'm not going to reveal anything. <laughs> you go and read it because it's an excellent book. So as a synopsis of your book, Gray, how would you describe it? And a little bit about what the book is about without giving the spoilers away. Well, it's a different kind of book for me. It is a middle grade ghost story about the, the spirit of a 12-year-old boy who he's no longer living, but his spirit is stuck at this deserted rice plantation in the low country of South Carolina, where I grew up in a town called Georgetown, where I grew up. And he basically, he doesn't remember who he is because he's been there for so long. He doesn't remember why he's stuck there and he doesn't know how to move on from this place. Um, because it's set on a deserted rice plantation, he is interacting with the ghost of other uh, people, the spirits of other people who would have been there, some who were enslaved there and has learned more about their experiences by being there. But the story kind of gets going when these three kind of modern day kids uh, from the living world, as he calls it, show up because they're investigating a mystery of a missing boy that they're doing a podcast for. And he kind of starts hearing things they're saying that remind him of his past. And he's trying to figure out what happened to him here at this plantation. And they end up befriending him and help him finding his, his way through his memories, basically. And, you know, it, it kind of came about because I grew up in the same place, just down the road from a deserted rice plantation where me and my friends used to ride our bikes and it, it was creepy. It was, you know, er, just the way it's described in the book is the way this plantation was that I, I used to visit. But uh, so that was kind of the inspiration of the book. The other inspiration was, you know, I deal with some topics in this book that are, are kind of timely right now. Um, I deal with topics of, you know, youth suicide. I deal with topics of slavery and I deal with topics of physical abuse. And I wanted to do those things because I think they're important because I've always believed that we have to meet kids where they are and kids out there are living and breathing this stuff every single day. Absolutely. And there could be some controversy with this book based on oh, the yeah. topics that you just mentioned. And we're also going to talk about some other controversy that has happened recently uh, later on in this interview when it comes to Fox News and right, right. the people there. But you didn't stray away from these hard topics. Right. And so just to reiterate, there's the talk of suicide. Uh, there is talk of slavery. There's talk of abuse that takes place within the family. Are kids ready for this material? You've that's alluded a, to it somewhat. That's a very good question, Doug, and a fair question. And what we're going through right now, when we market books to kids, you know, if you're writing YA, like when I wrote Social Intercourse, you're marketing that book directly to the readers, teen and up. You know, you're marketing directly to them. But when you're trying to sell and market a middle grade book, you're not selling directly to the kids. You are, are marketing and selling to the gatekeepers, the parents, the educators, the librarians, you know. And some of those people have very strong opinions about what is appropriate for that age group. Um, but the reason I decided to push boundaries in this book, and they are boundary pushing issues in this book. Uh, like you said, the, the, just the topic of the suicide of a 12 year old um, who is being bullied for being queer. That's not the kind of thing you usually read about in middle grade. Um, a, a white author like myself writing about enslaved characters, um, you know, that's not something you see a lot. And I do have a specific reason for doing that. Um, the physical abuse also. But th the main point is the reason I was moved to do this is because this is what's happening. You know, I mean, 
if you don't mind, I would I would love to read a couple of stats from the Trevor Project regarding suicide. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among young people ages 10 to 24. LGBTQ youth seriously contemplate suicide almost three times the rate of heterosexual youth. LGBTQ youth are almost five times as likely to have attempted suicide compared to heterosexual youth. You know, these statistics go on and on. And then we had a slate of very young people committing suicide, both in the area I live and around the country the last few years for being queer or being perceived as being queer. So this is something that is happening and it's becoming more common. And by not talking about it and saying it's inappropriate, doesn't solve anything. You know, I believe again, that kids are living this. So I will write books, you know, that meet them where they are. If kids are living it, I will write about it. Uh, even though it might not be the norm and it might be a little controversial, <laughs> but that's what, just what I feel my mission is, you know? So, you know, but the, but the bottom line is if, if even one kid who feels hopeless, who feels like suicide is their only option, if they read this book and it gives them hope and a way out of that darkness, any, you know, any negative feedback I get will be absolutely worth it. Amen. Absolutely. Amen. And just a reminder to people out there, we grew up on Judy Bloom books, you know, yes. so we grew up on books. It just, now we're putting in the LGBTQ plus the 2S LGBTQ plus as a main character. The topics are still the same. It's just taking a look at real life. And as you mentioned, if it's only one kid that reads and understands and is still here again tomorrow, it's all worth it. Uh, Greg, there's a publicist in your life who I was talking with. And, and when I was talking about why I was excited about the conversation with you is based on something that we're doing here in Edmonton that I became involved in, uh, something that's called Pride Corner on White. And back in February, March of this year, a group of us, um, strangers, somewhat friends, came together because we heard that eight unhoused rainbow children had committed mm. suicide in the 10 months previous. Mm. And so what we did is we came together to show visibility. And every Friday since then, we've been on the main intersection of Edmonton, a million people here in the city, waving flags, wow. providing water, all those type of things. And even with temperatures minus 30 degrees Celsius for the past mm -hmm. month here, usually it's a lot nicer, but it's been damn cold the last <laughs> month. We get 30 to 60 people and half of them wow. are youth. Wow. And it's the best thing that one's ever done just right. simply because the blood family may suck, but there's a chosen family that's out there and that's important. And that's what I got from your book as well. Not revealing spoilers again, but there's a chosen family that right. you can become part of who love you perhaps even more. And so as I stretch this a little bit, Greg, when were you able to find your chosen family in life? Well, that's a great question, Doug. You know, I was closeted basically all my life through college, and I didn't really come out or even accept myself and give myself a break, as you can understand, until after college. So it was after college and I moved to Nashville and I started living an authentic life, living a life of honesty. Um, I have some very deep religious roots in my life. And that's a lot of the reason that kept me from being myself and living my truth. Once I let that go and decided to live an authentic life, I started finding my family here in Nashville, you know, some of the, the best friends in the world, the people that you know will be there at the drop of a hat, people that you trust to be there actually more than your biological family. Uh, I'm not that close to my biological family for, for several reasons. 
uh, both my parents have passed. Um, but finding that family and that core group really gives you a sense of place, a sense of being and confidence to be yourself authentically. So, I mean, that is what I wish for everyone out there who may have been rejected by their families is there are other definitions of family. Yeah. And that's what's great. It's a magical superpower that we in the rainbow community have is that we have the ability to create and it's not just in book form or podcast form. It's the creation of a family. And yes, it's so important uh, to add to the pride corner on white. We're out there protesting the street preachers who are out there and uh, religion has become a huge focus in the past year because of that and the teachings that uh, come come about because of the church. I'm sure that it's similar in Nashville, uh, but they've done studies here in the city of Edmonton. 40 to 45% of the unhoused kids on the streets are part of our 2S LGBTQ plus community, mm. which is way too high. And Our we are not, kids. yeah, and we don't, we're not taught the tools on how to deal with this. We go through our teenage years so much later compared to others because we're just trying to survive in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Greg, how did you survive? Well, um, I got to some very dark places. And the reason I got to those dark places is, is a combination of things. You know, as I was researching for this book uh, and talked to child mental health professionals, you know, they, they all said something similar is that there's usually not one reason, just one reason why kids contemplate suicide. It's usually a variety of reasons. And that was the case with me too. I felt a lot of shame as a kid for being gay. I didn't know what to call it. You know, I knew I was attracted to boys and somehow, I mean, I knew from a very young age, like five, six years old. Uh, but somehow, even at that young age, I knew I shouldn't say anything about it, you know, and how does a five-year-old get that message? Well, it's from everything around them. It's from what they see in books and movies and uh, or reading books and seeing movies and music. Everything is uh, amplifying this heterosexual cisgender lifestyle that I had no concept of. So I knew I must be the only little gay kid in the world, <laughs> you know, and that makes you feel very lonely and takes you to some dark places. Now, also, <clears throat> because I didn't come out until after college and I was very closeted during high school, middle school, uh, I didn't get bullied in high school and middle school for being gay because nobody knew. Uh, but the bullying I received was from the pulpit. And I, I don't want to sit here and bash religion because I don't believe that all religion is bad. Of course not. But I grew up in the South in a very strict religious Pentecostal environment where going to church as a little kid, I don't know how many times I heard a preacher say homosexuality is the worst sin there is. And when you're a little kid struggling thinking already that you're bad. And then to hear that, it just amplifies it and amplifies it even more. <clears throat> so my struggle was getting beyond that religious bullying. And again, not all religion is bad. I know that not all Pentecostal churches are bad. I'm just saying this was my experience, you know, uh, from, but from not seeing myself in media, from getting that kind of pulpit bullying, uh, I grew, my mother died when I was very young. I was five when she died and an abusive stepmother came into our world, uh, physically abusive. So it was, a, it was all these things together um, that kind of led me to my dark place. And when I remember thinking about death and wanting to die as young as 12 years old, uh, which is the age of the kids in this book, that's when I wanted to die. Uh, I was asked recently, how did I, how did I survive? Um, because I do believe, you know, if you contemplate suicide and you don't die of suicide, you have survived. <clears throat> I will say that it took me getting out of that environment, getting out of that religious environment as soon as I could, which would have been when I went to college. 
uh, getting away from those messages I was getting with getting from my family and it, starting to live a life of truth. That's what saved me is when I could look myself in the mirror and not hate what I saw. And I don't know if you grew up in church, Doug, but I after college, I kind of had a one. I had a come to Jesus meeting with Jesus, as I like to say, <laughs> um, you know, I come from an environment where you talk to God. And so I was talking to God and I was about 22 years old and I was just so fed up with feeling all the self-loathing and self-hatred that I just said, I didn't choose to be this way. I've prayed almost every single day for the last 22 years of my life not to be this way, you know, and nothing has changed. So I kind of said to God in my own way, you know, if you're the kind of God who would create me this way and then want me to be miserable the rest of my life and hate myself, then I want no part of you. I want no part of it. And that gave me such a peace to get to that point. And I will say that in that moment, my relationship with religion is quite different than it was when I was 22. In that moment, I just felt this peace come over me. And it was almost like I could hear God or some being or somebody or something in my head saying, of course, I don't want you to be miserable. Of course, I don't want you to hate yourself. And that's when I realized I'd been listening to people instead of, you know, a higher power or myself. And it was people that I had these issues with. Yeah. Uh, Devan and Hubert was a recent guest here on Tales of the 2S LGBTQ+. And he said something that really struck me is that when he was growing up, he created church as being God in his mm, mind and not point. God itself. And that really struck me as, oh, that it wasn't. And that helped him in his healing as well. Yes. Uh, now, getting back into your book, uh, The Visitors, there's a lot of you within the book uh, with the character of Thomas. There's some connection with your real life relationship with your family. I am curious, though, about a part of your book. You really emphasize grandmas, uh, the character of Will mentioning his grandma, mentioning the grandmother of another character. What does the word grandma mean to you in real life? Hmm. That's a great question. Both of my grandmas have passed, and I was very, very close um, to one of them. My mother's mom loved the other one, you know, just wasn't as close. Uh, but she was such a force in my life. My grandma Sadie is her name. And she's kind of who I based the character, although she's not on the page, the character of the the narrator, his grandma. That's where that inspiration came was from my grandma. And <clears throat> actually one of the enslaved characters is named after my other grandma, Retha May. But grandma Sadie, uh, we had a special connection because when my mom died at the age of 26, my grandparents were shattered. They were crushed. She was 26, you know, and she was so beloved. She was a beauty queen. Everybody in town knew her. She was a godly woman. You know, everybody loved her. And she died at age 26 of, of cancer and it destroyed my grandmother. It's interesting that my grandfather um, was never went to church, was kind of a rascal and a, a, an alcoholic. And my grandmother was very religious. But when my mom died, they kind of switched. Now, my grandma didn't become alcoholic, but she stopped going to church on a dime. I mean, she just stopped going to church. And I believe it's because she blamed God for taking her little girl. My grandfather, on the other hand, when my mom died, quit drinking and started going to church every Sunday. So it's a very interesting dynamic. But I do believe that that grandmas or even grandpas can have such an influence in our life and imprint on us so heavily that they stay with us, whether they're here or not. You know, to my grandmother, I was like I looked the most like my mother. So she kind of, I was the favorite. All my cousins and my brother knew that. <laughs> it was just kind of, you know, she, you know, she favored me. But, you know, grandmas have such an important role in our lives. And 
the things they do and say when we're young, just they stay with us. And those things that I put in the book are things that have, you know, came from my grandmother that just have stayed with me my whole life. You, when you mentioned your grandmother's name, I had a take back moment simply because my great grandmother's name is Sadie as well. And my sister's middle name is Sadie. Uh, I never got to meet that great grandmother, uh, but my mom idolized her. And when you were just mentioning about being a favorite, my great grandmother, Ruby, was the first woman that I ever came out to. And she kept my secret for five years before I was ready to come out after college to more and more people. And there's power. There's power within those grandmothers. And that was part of the reason why I connected so well with your book, because as you're writing, I can see the connection to the real life you and I could see myself in those pages. And there's a magical part of writing when that happens. And it's been a while since I've read something that I've connected with so much. And oh, wow. yeah, that's, that's blowing smoke up your ass a bit. It's truth. I was going to say, what I have found in my writing is that the more I share of myself and my life, the more of myself that I leave on the page, so to speak, the more readers connect with it, the more it touches readers in a very deep way. The two books that you know I've written that do that are The Visitors and The Whispers. The Whispers is a very um, personal, personal story with a big grandmother presence also. <laughs> and uh, I had just found with that book, because it's been out a couple of years, that people really connect to those personal moments. They'll say, my favorite part was this. And I'm thinking, well, that really happened to me. You know, my favorite character was this. I'm like, well, that's my grandfather, you know? Uh, so I, I want to, sometimes it's scary to put yourself out there and to bare your soul, but that's what I've found to be most rewarding. And that's when I, you know, this is skipping back to something we said earlier. I don't know why it came to me, but we were talking about how you and I grew up and didn't have access to like books and things like that. We know there's more of that out there now than there was when we were young. However, I will say that I'm still amazed when kids come up to me at at school visits or festivals or conferences and they, they bear their souls to me because something in my book has given them a connection to me and I'm happy for that. But some of them still say, this is the first book I ever saw myself in. And this is 2022. Now, again, we know there are other books out there, but it's about access. And representation is so important because when you see yourself in a book, you know that you matter. You know that you're not alone. And that's why it, it's so important. But yeah, I, I'm still amazed when I hear that in 2022. Well, and what really comes across in your writing is that authenticity um, because you are bearing your soul. And this, yes, this book is marketed geared towards those middle age years, but I'll tell you right now for all the adults who are listening, pick up the book. It starts to heal a lot of those things that you didn't think needed healing, but that 12 year old, 13, 14 year old uh, inner child in you, needs to hear and read that voice as well, because that needs some soothing as well. I agree with you. And I like to write my middle grade books, of course, you know, to classify them as middle grades because the main characters are that middle grade, middle school age. But I try to write them so they will be interesting to adults, too, for a couple of reasons, just because exactly what you just said. There's a child in all of us, especially in the queer community, that was traumatized, you know, and that child in us sometimes is still hanging on to a lot of that trauma and reading books like this and others like it, I think, again, helps you even as an adult helps you heal that trauma that you had when you were that age. The other thing it does is I want books that parents feel will enjoy reading with their kids, whether it's literally reading them to them or alongside them. I, you know, I have parents tell me, oh, we're reading the same book, me and my daughter and, you know, your book. And it's kind of scary when people start trying to shut that down 
and take these books out of their hands because the adults are removing themselves from the conversation. And why wouldn't you want to be part of that conversation with your child? Mm-hmm. Speaking of one of the words that you just said, um, we've recently done a survey with our Pride Corner on White. And the first question, of course, is how you identify. And there's the list of everything in there within our rainbow community. And I looked at it the other day and I was just struck that there's a certain amount of acknowledgements of people who identify as lesbian, as gay, bisexual, transgender. Most of all, though, people have selected the word queer. Mm-hmm. I've always had an issue with the word queer because it was used against me. And, and I still struggle with that word. Mm-hmm. I'm, I understand it, but I still struggle. Where are you at with, when it comes to the word queer? Well, obviously, um, this is a word that was used to harm us when we were young. And what I have, and I completely understand, you know, your, what you're saying there and respect it. Over the last few years, um, talking to kids, uh, who are LGBTQ, <clears throat> LGBTQ and hearing their vocabulary, and hearing how they talk about themselves, you know, it's a word that comes up a lot as, as a self-description or a self-label, whatever you want to call it. And I think there is some power to taking the word back. Uh, I do use it when I'm to encompass a lot of different um, perspectives, uh, but it is very empowering to me to take back a word that was used against me when I was young and take all the the power out of it. You know, it's a term to me now. It's, you know, and if someone, if I'm, if I'm using it and someone says, I'm sorry, that offends me, then I'll stop using it. You know, I'm not a mean person, but yeah, I have just really embraced taking that word back and taking all the venom out of it. Mm, I love the word venom out of it. Mm-hmm. Love that. Hey, um, Oh, I get the chills by just asking you this question and the preamble that I'm going to do with it. Laura Ingram from Fox (laughs) News. And to the audio listeners, my eyes are rolling to the back of my skull, even saying her name out loud. She mentioned you on her show and especially your book, Middle School is a Drag. In context, A teacher of the year from Maine released a list of books she recommends to everyone. Your book, Middle School is a Drag, was on the list. One of the panelists on Laura Ingram's show decried the choices, including your book, saying it was anti-father, pushing LGBTQ plus issues, focusing on people being transgender, being quote unquote woke. What was your reaction to having one of your books mentioned on Fox News like this? Well, I can tell you, it's it's not something I ever thought would happen. (laughs) And it's interesting how it came about or how I learned about it. Uh, I got a letter from or an email, excuse me, old school, uh, from a school board director who just said they had finished reading Middle School's a Drag, loved it, thought it was great. And said that if they were a gay boy um, in middle school and had this book, it would have made all the difference in the world to them. And then they mentioned that where they heard about it was on Fox News on Laura Ingram's show, The Ingram Angle. And I was like, what? And apparently this school board director uh, was facing some book banning issues in their district. And they were actually watching Fox News and Laura Ingram as reconnaissance because they knew she was doing a show on on this. And, you know, they put my book cover up there and that person went and bought it. So thank you for that, Laura. But so, you know, it was very surreal. It it wasn't as shocking as, as it should have been, but when you hear, you know, a book that is just as sweet and humorous and just trying to represent kids that are out there being called sickening or a sickening addition to this list it, it just, it breaks my heart for, for the kids, for the young readers, you know, it doesn't hurt my feelings, but it breaks my heart for those kids. 
And what people like Laura Ingram and Matt Krause in Texas, who has created that list of 850 titles that he is investigating public schools for having in their libraries, middle schools of drag is on that list too. You know, they think they're protecting children by withdrawing access from these books, but they're actually doing them great, great harm. And sometimes fatally so. Because when some of these kids are in dark places and they can't, like we've said, they can't see themselves in a book or anywhere else, it just is really damaging and, and sends them to a very lonely and dark place where they might consider harming themselves. So it's, it's an ongoing battle. Um, I don't know where it's going to end, Doug, but I'm going to keep talking about it. You know, I'm going to keep uh, pushing my agenda, which is to give kids books they need. And that's all we can do. You know, these these naysayers, these people are going to be out there saying horrible things. And we have to be out there and be the light. Yeah. Speaking of your agenda, uh, I know that you've received some interesting emails over the years, and yes. especially if you've begun to write novels for middle age, middle school age readers. Uh, some of the lines from these emails would be, never before have I thrown a book away. Yours is the first. Your story didn't need to mention that the character was straight or gay. The moment you cross into my world and suggest to my kids your sexuality, you are pushing your own homosexual agenda. Greg, what is your homosexual agenda? Well, Doug, I'll tell you. <laughs> I, I do have an agenda. Um, my agenda is simply to write the kind of books I wish I'd had access to when I was a queer kid and lost and lonely to write the kind of books that queer kids out there feel seen and represented to know, to help them know that their stories have value, their lives have value. And something I was never given at that age is to give queer kids out there, their happily ever afters. You know, when I was young, if I did see any representation of a queer person, it was also usually very tragic. You know, and I don't want to take away that experience because there are tragic experiences out there and they are valid. You know, I deal with some tragic, traumatic experiences in the visitors. And some people will say, well, why did you have to do that in the book? Well, that's where kids are. Some kids are there, you know, so we can't just all be roses and lollipops and pretend it doesn't exist. But yeah, so that's my agenda. And it's interesting you brought up that email because it just, it broke my heart. I mean, it doesn't hurt my feelings. You know, I'm well past that, but it broke my heart for a couple of reasons. One is to say something like the homosexual agenda. And I just told you what my agenda is. That's all it is to say also that I didn't have to mention that the main character was gay. Well, you're just, then you're just erasing all the gay kids and all the queer kids out of there. It's like they don't, because in so many books, the, the dominant discourse is heterosexuality and being cisgender. That's the dominant discourse. So if you are living outside of the dominant discourse, somehow these people think that your story doesn't matter, that you don't need to identify yourself by saying the character is gay. Uh, and I disagree with that uh, wholeheartedly. And, you know, another thing that with that email that broke my heart it came from a father whose son had been reading the whispers and the father was asking the kid, I think the kid was 11, 12, you know, perfect age for the whispers. Now, let me say the whispers is a very sweet, innocuous story. There is, there is a chaste kiss. That is it. <laughs> and a crush, you know, that's all. So, but, but the, but the character does struggle with, being attracted to boys because of his environment and the religious oppression around him. This father, you know, asked his son, you know, well, what's, what's going on in the book you're reading? And something that the kid said made the father curious. And he went and looked and read the description and saw that the main character is gay. And that's what prompted that email. But he also was kind enough to send me a picture of my book torn up and thrown in the trash, you know, and that was so kind of him to do that. <laughs> But, you know, and I 
when I talk to friends about it and my editor, they're all like, oh, that must have really hurt your feelings because that's your work and it's so important to you. It's a personal story and he threw it away. I'm like that, that, that's not what broke my heart about it. What broke my heart is if that man's son is queer, he just saw his father tear him up and throw him in the trash. And yeah. that's what, what just breaks my heart. Yeah. All those pieces of a person's soul being thrown away. Right. Exactly. And, and when the father asks questions of his child again in the future, the son's going to lie. The son's going to do everything in his power to not right. say anything that's true. That relationship right. is broken and it's heartbreaking. Yes. Wow. And even, even if the kid isn't queer in some way, you know, young straight cisgender readers can learn empathy for marginalized communities by reading these stories. These stories aren't just for queer kids. Uh, I want them to be in the hands of all queer kids, but I want, you know, heterosexual cisgender kids to read them too, to learn empathy about the people around them. Hmm. To learn more about Greg Howard, www.greghowardbooks.com. And just a reminder to everybody, The Visitors will be released on February 1st of 2022. There's a couple of things that I would like us to get back into when it comes to your book. And you mentioned about it earlier, uh, about being white, cisgender, and we talked about the controversy when it comes to suicide. It also should be noted that you did write in your book about the plantation and that there are enslaved characters found within. Yes. Can you talk about you as a white author writing about enslaved characters? Yes. And I'm, I'm happy to, it's a great question. I had, had a purpose in doing that. <clears throat> First of all, let me say that as a, as a white writer, I wouldn't personally, I wouldn't feel comfortable writing from the perspective of uh, a person of color. Like if, you know, my main character is a person of color and I have to be in that person's head because I don't know that experience. I, I can't, um, I can't represent that experience the way it needs to be represented. Um, I do try to, you know, diversify my cast in my books because I want Asian kids and kids of color and indigenous. I want them to see themselves in these books too. So, but it's, it is tricky uh, when you're a white writer writing about enslaved characters, even if you're not writing from their perspective. And the reason I wanted to do this in this book is because when I was a kid and I used to go down to that plantation that we lived down the road from, because I had been taught this false narrative about the antebellum South and about slavery, I went to that place thinking, oh, this place is so cool and it's so beautiful. And look at those cabins, this, the enslaved people used to live in. They are so cool. You know, I had no clue. It's <laughs> completely ignorant to the realities of that place and of the horrible, horrible things that went on there. Because in school at that time, we had to take South Carolina history class, both in middle school and in elementary school. And we were taught, you know, this very whitewashed, romanticized view of slavery, how the enslaved people, oh, well, they were part of the family of the, you know, the planter and the planter's family, treated them like family. Oh, this one built, built a chapel for the enslaved people. You know, we were given this very watered down, whitewashed uh, interpretation of history. And of course, it wasn't until I became an adult and started reading uh, more about the real experiences of enslaved people and just black people in America, for that matter, that I started to really understand, you know, that that was a horrible place, you know, and it's not really a place I should have been looking at as romanticized and beautiful and peaceful. And it wasn't a peaceful place <laughs> not for the people that were enslaved there, not at all. So, my purpose in bringing those characters into this book is my desire to engage young white readers 
with a part of history that, quite frankly, they don't have to think about if they don't want to. They don't have to deal with that in their minds. If their privilege allows them to just kind of shut that out. And I just wanted to try to do my part in putting the truth in front of those young white readers and hopefully so they will engage in important discussions within within their peer groups with students of color or friends of color that they will open their eyes more to the harsh realities of what went on at that plantation. And, you know, there, there will be some people that say as a white author, I shouldn't even be writing, you know, enslaved characters in my books. And I, I respect that. I do. But that was the purpose behind it. And I write about that in my author's note that that was the reason I felt it was important to do this. And also the reason why I felt it was important not to pull any punches with the stories of those enslaved characters. Mm. Uh, and it should be noted here again that at the end of your book, you do have your author's notes and that explains bits and pieces and explains a lot of what we're discussing here today in this podcast interview. Uh, and I thought that was wonderful because here I am struck by this story that's beautiful and heartbreaking and scary. And then at the end, I go back to my own learning over the past few years. I'm like, oh, wait a minute should what and it was great to be able to read and go okay yes i absolutely understand the rationale it's well, so clear to me good because <laughs> my editor who who is a black woman who has roots in the south you know she was just instrumental in guiding me through this manuscript and she told me not only because of having the enslaved characters but because of, of dealing with suicide of a 12 year old in a middle grade book and the physical abuse uh, of a 12 year old. She told me, she said, Greg, your author's note has got to be on point. <laughs> and I laughed and she said, no, I'm serious. You've got to cover everything in this author's note and it's got to be perfect. So I hope that like you, your reaction at the end of the book is, is probably what a lot of people's reaction going to be. I do hope they go on and read the author's note and try to understand the context of why I wrote this book the way I did. Yeah, it necessary. And you did hit it on point. It was the perfect way to wrap that up for sure. No, thanks. You mentioned your grandmother, uh, especially growing up and the comfort that you received from her. The character of Will Perkins mentions Walter Cronkite, the mm -hmm. voice of America, uh, United States, because, you know, I'm here, here in Canada. Exactly, and exactly. Walter Cronkite brought him comfort. Right. So in your adult years, after coming out, what has brought you comfort day to day? Mm, you know, the, the answer that comes to my mind right off the bat is books, you know. Uh, books bring me comfort every single day of my life. I have a lot of time that I sit down and read. It's usually in the afternoons from four to six and I have a glass of wine. And to get lost in story is just to me so comforting and so uh, peaceful because I'm just out of myself and I'm into the story of these characters and, and that's what has brought me comfort. Now, when I was a kid, like I wrote in the book, for some reason, Walter Cronkite brought me that comfort because it was like a steady voice. You know, there, you know how news is today. It's just, it's yeah. frightening. It's just yeah, frightening. It's terrible. Walter Cronkite, you know, for all his flaws, or I don't know if he had any flaws, but I'm sure he did. Uh, he was a steadying, comfort, comfortable presence in my young life. When, you know, my mother was gone, she had died and had this, you know, terrible stepmother and, that watching the evening news with Walter Cronkite was the thing that brought me comfort and kind of brought me back to myself. And that's kind of what reading does for me now. Hmm. Here's a synopsis once again of the visitors that's being released on February 1st, 2022. A lonely 12-year-old boy spends his days stuck, deserted hollow pines plantation in Georgetown, South, South Carolina with no recollection of his name, how long he's been there, and no idea how to leave. 
Things never change much for the lost souls at Hollow Pines, and time is strange when you're dead. But when visitors from the living world arrive for the first time in a long while, the boy feels a spark of hope. These visitors are around his age, and they seem to understand more than others that the plantation is not just spooky or eerie. It's a sad place where the unspeakable happened again and again. As the visitors investigate a mystery of their own for a podcast for a school project, the boy's long-buried memories begin to shake loose. He wonders if maybe they could help him uncover the dark secrets of his past in hopes of finding a way to finally move on. But Hollow Pines doesn't like visitors, and with a spirit lurking in the shadows and a painful and painful memories buried deep, and for good reason, the boy wonders if he'll ever find his way home or be stuck at Hollow Pines forever. Hauntingly beautiful and filled with lyrical prose that will crack and spark critical thinking and encourage meaningful conversations on the subjects of slavery and suicide, the visitors will stay with readers long after the last page is turned. Hmm. And I absolutely agree with everything when it comes to that. Thank you. Greg, what comes next for you after the release of this book? And hopefully it gets into every hands of every kid who needs to read the book. What comes after that? Well, another book. <laughs> you know, you always have to be writing the next one. The publishing world takes a lot of time to get a book out, you know, so I could, I'm writing something now uh, that may not come out for two years. That's, that's just how it works. But I will be working on this new book, um, which deals with the theme of time travel. Um, and it is also a middle, middle grade book set in the South. <clears throat> and with the main character being queer, of course, um, because that's what I choose to do. There's also, as you said, we're working on a TV series for Middle Schools of Drag um, it, by Heyday Television and NBC Universal. Also another slow process, but th things are kind of moving along in that. And there is a Whispers, uh, a film adaptation of the Whispers in the works as well. So a lot going on and uh, just trying to stay on top of it all. So much going on. Hey, you're putting that positive energy into the world and it's all going to come back to you in so many fantastic ways. Uh, that I know Thank for you. sure. Thank you. Last question for you. I always go back to the 15-year-old self because for me, that was a huge year in my life. Uh, and for people who are new to uh, this podcast, it was a year when my only sister was born, same parents. I had been an only child up until then, but that was the year which it really struck me that I was the only gay in the village. I mm -hmm. lived in a village of 172 people, oh, wow. went to high school in a town of 5,000. I felt like I was different. I now know not the case, but the age of 15 was big for me. If you were able to do time travel, and you found your 15-year-old self on a park bench and you got to sit down beside him, what would you say to him? Well, the first thing I would say to him is that there is nothing wrong with you. You are not bad in, inherently. You know, you are wonderfully made and you need to be who you are and be true to yourself. That to me is the most important message that I could give myself when I was that age or give any kids out there who are struggling right now, just to know that there's nothing wrong with you. You're not alone and your story has value. Mm. Perfect. Absolutely. Greg. Let's do this again sometime soon. Absolutely. Wait, Thank you. Yeah. Let's not wait two years until the next book is released. There's That's lots of perfect. stuff. And, um, I do want to bring you into the pride corner on white world because we do have 50 to a hundred kids that come out at different times, once or one time or many times, uh, who 
need to hear the words and need to understand that authenticity is great and that you have the power to write your own story. Absolutely. Yes. And I totally agree with that. Thank you so much for having me, Doug. This has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah, it's been great. Well, on behalf of Greg Howard, the book is The Visitors being released on February 1st, 2022. My name is Douglas Parsons. Just reminding all of you to be good and always text when you get home. Until next time, everybody. Bye.